You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. COVID-themed fish bait has shifted to vaccines. Notes on the ransomware exploiting vulnerable exchange servers. Purple Fox gets wormy. Sierra Wireless halts operations to remediate a ransomware incident. Notes on ICS vulnerabilities. More victims of third-party risk. Joe Kerrigan looks at SMS security issues. Our guest is Ron Brash from Verve Industrial with takeaways from their 2020 ICS vulnerabilities report. And what are the cyber criminals thinking? From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Wednesday, March 24th, 2021. Palo Alto Networks Unit 42 this morning released a report describing the ways in which cyber criminals are taking advantage of the COVID 19 pandemic. The nature of the fish bait has shifted over the course of the pandemic. It began with come-ons for testing kits and personal protection equipment, moved on to government stimulus and relief programs, and now, in what one hopes is a sign of an approaching endgame, it's shifted to vaccine availability. Their reliance on hurrying the victims with a sense of urgency is a familiar social engineering tactic. As the report says, quote, We found that at each step along the way, attackers have continued to change their chosen tactics to adapt to the latest pandemic trends, in hopes that maintaining a timely sense of urgency will make it more likely for victims to give up their credentials. The criminals are now exploiting confusion and concern over vaccine availability and vaccination scheduling. As is so often the case, much of the phishing is angling for the victims' credentials. Along with some specific recommendations for defense, Unit 42's general advice is individuals should continue to exercise caution when viewing any emails or websites claiming to sell any goods or services or provide any benefits related to COVID-19. If it seems too good to be true, it most likely is. Employees in the healthcare industry in particular should view links contained in any incoming emails with suspicion, especially from emails trying to convey a sense of urgency. Deer Cry and Black Kingdom ransomware continue to be deployed against vulnerable Microsoft Exchange servers, but the execution is slovenly, suggesting that even for criminals, haste makes waste. Wired notes that Deer Cry's relative lack of sophistication renders it a less dangerous threat. It's a bare-bones operation, pretty retro by today's prevailing ransomware standards. 
No command and control server and no automated countdown timers. It uses, instead, old-school human interaction to hustle its marks. It lacks obfuscation, and it even engages in some self-jamming, encrypting files that make it difficult or even impossible for the victim to operate their computer, even if the victim wants to pay the ransomware. So the deer cry hoods seem to have been better at jumping aboard the vulnerabilities exposed and exploited by Hafnium than they were at writing good, by which we mean bad, ransomware. Still, there's a risk associated with DeerCry, and it's also the case that the operators could learn and evolve their tools into more effective forms. That's already happened with another ransomware strain. The operators of Black Kingdom ransomware, first seen active last summer, have also taken note of the opportunity unpatched exchange servers present criminals. The record reports that Black Kingdom's kickoff of its own operations against exchange servers was also, in some respects, sloppy, They'd failed to encrypt victims' files. By yesterday, however, Black Kingdom had rectified their mistake, Sophos reports. Gardacore describes Purple Fox, an active malware campaign targeting Windows machines. It's backed by an extensive infrastructure, and it includes a rootkit with worm capabilities. Gardacore wrote, quote, Throughout our research, we have observed an infrastructure that appears to be made out of a hodgepodge of vulnerable and exploited servers hosting the initial payload of the malware. Infected machines, which are serving as nodes of those constantly worming campaigns, and server infrastructure that appears to be related to other malware campaigns. End quote. In a Form 6K filed yesterday with the Securities and Exchange Commission, Sierra Wireless disclosed that on March 20th, it discovered a ransomware attack that led it to suspend manufacturing. The company believes only internal systems were hit, with customer-facing products and services unaffected. For its part, Honeywell, which had also suspended operations after sustaining an unspecified cyber attack, announced yesterday that it had resumed normal operations. CyberScoop says that Honeywell has remained tight-lipped about the incident. It's not known, for example, whether the attack the company sustained involved ransomware. The U.S. Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency yesterday released six advisories on industrial control systems. Clarity published its own research on one of those advisories, the one affecting Avaro T-Box, which the researchers believe illustrates the risks of connecting unprotected control systems to the Internet. Such unprotected control systems are readily discoverable through Shodan searches. Federal News Network reports that the third-party breach that affected AFCEA this week has also affected another organization that used the compromised Spargo conference registration software. The U.S. Geospatial Intelligence Foundation has also notified individuals whose data may have been compromised in the incident. And finally, suppose you were a criminal working in cyberspace. Not that you are or would ever be, of course, but just suppose. You'd want to avoid getting caught, right? Sure you would. Anywho, in the spirit of jailhouse lawyering and age-old traditions of master-apprentice mentoring— Cyber criminals are offering advice to one another about how to avoid getting collared. The security firm Digital Shadows, and we hasten to add that they're the good guys here, not the crooks, says it got interested in how the underworld views its relations with law enforcement. Do they worry about being arrested? 
does the prospect of getting caught deter them? Digital Shadows snooped its way through various online underworld communities and found a lot of chatter about the importance of separating your criminal online identity from your in-real-life physical personal kinetic identity. The identity that brings home beer, for example, that will take a shower every now and then. A lot of that discussion seems folkloric as opposed to technical. The crooks also advise each other to be cautious in their dealings. You can't have friends in the darknet, one representative comment said. That's tough because, of course, most crime involves some sort of collaboration, but cooperation with other crooks also brings risk. A catch-22, Digital Shadows observes. A theme in Russophone circles is to avoid hitting victims in the near abroad, that is, in former Soviet republics. Go after the British and the Americans and your Jake, but mess with the near abroad, and especially with Russians, and you'll wind up in the slammer. This advice has been tempered recently by the Ukrainian authorities' recent arrest and prosecution of criminals who thought they enjoyed a degree of immunity. And once you've embarked on your life of crime, forget about foreign travel, except maybe to places that don't have a lot of extradition treaties in place. That's a downer for vacation plans, because after all, there's only so much to do in Transnistria. There's another advice on what to do when the cops show up, what to expect from prosecutors and what the realities of prison life might be. The hoods have a lot of worries. So, fellow youths, the best advice is to stay in school and stay on the straight and narrow. If you don't, you'll break your mother's heart. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program, quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. 
Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. Verve Industrial are providers of OT and ICS security services, and they recently published their ICS advisory report. Ron Brash is Director of Security Insights at Verve Industrial. These advisory reports are a bit of a, a table stakes, I think, in the industry nowadays. I think every vendor and, and their grandmother is producing one. But uh, what, why we chose to do it and to do it in a slightly different way is I, I came from an embedded systems engineering background. And, and one of the reasons that we wrote it and we wrote it the way we did was uh, we don't believe that, you know, CVEs and CVSS scores and all that stuff are perfect. And they're definitely not perfect in OT. But what we wanted to do is to look at the advisors and add more nuance to the discussions, right? For example, um, you know, we had 200. There was actually slightly more, but we, we uh, honed it in a bit. But there was 248 advisories in 2020, uh, which was up something like 50% from the year before. But we wanted to talk about it in a different way, right? Um, you know, when how do you identify that an advisory is referring to third-party code or supply chain problems? How do you talk about all those other devices that are that don't have advisories but should have advisories? How do you talk about it from multiple perspectives? You know, there's the asset owner perspective, then there's the the cybersecurity professional, if you will, and then there's the, just the sheer looking at it of which vendor uh, might be better than another or not. So there, there's multiple perspectives there, and we tried to put all that into something cohesive, and I think it turned out pretty pretty good. Well, let's go through some of the details together. I mean, what are some of the things from the report that stood out to you? Well, interestingly enough, uh, if you look at just the sheer number of advisories, 36, both in 20, the ones that I just identified on an initial analysis, 36 out of the 248 were supply chain related and that number coincides with 2019 by sheer fluke. Now, again, this is a thumb in the wind strategy, but that stood out to me because uh, of those 38 uh, supply chain, you know, related vulnerabilities in products or those advisories, there that accounted for something like 17 or 18 percent of all of the vulnerabilities out there. And and for me, that was the main point that we were trying to make across is, uh, you know, so you thought Solar Winds was bad. Well, wait till you start looking at software build materials and stuff like that, which will be part of the solution. But that was probably the one of the most uh, surprising things there. Is there a general, um, I don't know, lack of visibility when it comes to ICS security? Well, y- yes, yes and no. Um, I think there's a lot of awareness on vulnerabilities these days uh, because cybersecurity is an Ouroboros, a snake eating its own tail, right? So there, you have multiple agendas com- competing for marketing FUD and, and you know, generating all sorts of awareness for their own purposes, right? Because it increases their bottom lines. That's not what we try to do at Verve, and, and that's, the company is not like that, and I'm not like that. But uh, for right or wrong, there has been increased visibility on these things because of things like uh, the Trek IP stack or Urgent 11. Uh, we call those, or even like Heartbleed, for example, if you look at the IT world problems, those are what we call branded uh, vulnerability families. And um, often they have very overreaching claims, but uh, well, fortunately and unfortunately, fortunately, they get to the boards uh, of large companies, which means that there's awareness at the top of the company, which is good. Nobody was doing that before. Uh, Same with ransomware. But the bad is, is that it's uh, determining whether or not those vulnerabilities are in products is a very, very nuanced uh, discussion. Um, 
For example, I always say, I always quote this is the presence of, of vulnerability does not mean exploitability. So there's awareness of the top level organizations, but when it comes to knowing what's inside of your products and then what to do about them, we're really off the mark there. That's Ron Brash from Verve Industrial. And joining me once again is Joe Kerrigan. He's from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute and also my co-host on the Hacking Humans podcast. Hey, Joe, good to have you back. Hi, Dave. Uh, We had this article come by from Vice, written by Joseph Cox, uh, and this is uh, titled, A Hacker Got All My Texts for $16. Uh, This one's been making the rounds, and I wanted to check in with you on it. I mean, this is the kind of thing that we talk about over on Hacking Humans uh, these potential issues with SMS. So what is your, for, describe to us what's going on here and, and give us your take. So if anybody who's been a longtime listener to this show uh, has heard me talk many times about multi-factor authentication and how you should use multi-factor authentication and the most secure form that you can, wh- wherever you can use it. Uh, unfortunately, right. the most common form of multi-factor authentication is also the least secure, at least the, the most common form that I've found in my experience, right? And that is yeah. uh, authentication via SMS message. And there are a number of issues with it. Uh, you can be the victim of a SIM swapping attack, which is where someone calls into your uh, mobile provider and assigns your your account to a new SIM, that's, uh, mm-hmm. they've, which is the little device in your phone that identifies your phone to the telephone network. Right. They they can also use it for social engineering, uh, they, or via social engineering they can they can get the code out of you, which is also something that is true with other like pre shared keys, pre shared secret keys. But uh, this new attack actually doesn't require a lot of that. We don't really know if it's a new attack. Actually, um, right. that's one of the things this article says is this has been a capability for a very long time, and right. what Joseph Cox is talking about is for. $16, you can sign up with a company uh, for a, a new uh, this service that allows text messages to be redirected to a mm-hmm. new location. And they ask you to fill out this letter of authorization, right? But in order to fill out the letter of authorization, there's really not a lot of security checks on it. it they just, you can put in fake information and uh, this company that, that this um, this hacker who called himself Lucky Two Two Five, who is who works with a company called Oki Systems, mm-hmm. was able to do this for you know buying a uh, a prepaid plan for sixteen dollars a month, and he was able to transfer all the texts that came from uh, Joseph's providers to him, and Joseph got no notification of this. He, yeah. There was there was no authorization. There was no. Uh, First, let me send a text to your existing uh, right. phone, and let me <laughs> right. make sure this is okay with you, right? There was right. Nothing, none of that. It was just like, okay, yeah. we started sending it, and the phone was still connected to the T-Mobile network, uh, mm-hmm. which is really scary. So this is just another attack on this SMS um, this two-factor authentication. Now, yeah. of course, the question comes that everybody's going to ask and, and ask me in particular because I'm, I'm still an advocate for this. Should I continue to use SMS multi-factor authentication? And I still say yes. If that's the best that you can get from the institution you're dealing with or from the website you're dealing with. If they right. offer anything else, now is the time to move on. 
right? Yeah, right. It's, but, so it's it's way better than nothing, right? But there are things that are way better than it, right? Exactly, exactly. Yeah, uh, and it's 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 going to be way better than nothing, especially with this attack, because there is a cost associated with this this attack. So mm. th- this attack is not scalable, right? Like credential stuffing is scalable. I can take a million uh, credentials and try them on a million websites, and I can automate that uh, right, and right. do that. But I can't go out and perform this attack on a million people without $16 million, which right, right, I may right. not be willing to uh, to spend. I'm sure I can do it for less, actually. Um, yeah. But there's there's some limit to this. There's got to be some limit to this as well with the companies that allow that provide these kind of services. Um, yeah. And the company who who's mentioned in this article, as Joseph Cox points out, um, you know, they say that they they they've cracked down on this since it was pointed out to them. They've they've right. made it more difficult to do. So so that's good. But the article also points out they're not the only company who does this. So, right. And there are some companies I get the feeling out there that might be doing this with a wink and a nod, right? And yeah, we get it. Right. Yeah. Right. 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 And um, I think the bigger issue here, uh, which is something that drew the attention of Senator Ron Wyden, um, which is that he he says that the FCC needs to crack down on this sort of thing. That there's things are too loosey goosey when it comes to SMS. Uh, just that that the companies are even capable of doing this sort of thing. Yeah. Um, uh, that's a problem and it's, it's a long time coming. It's way too, been way too long since the FCC took a closer look at this from Senator Wyden's point of view. So I would agree maybe this will draw some attention to it. Yeah. yeah, I hope so. Hope so. And I hope that the, the FCC is, is paying attention. I hope that they are, uh, thinking about putting in some new regulation that make this more difficult. And I don't like the idea that somebody can just pay another company 16 bucks to, to take all my, my text messages. And yeah. I really don't like the idea that that can happen without me getting any notification or any any way for me to find out. Um, you know, at least with a SIM swapping attack, my phone stops working, right? Right, I, right. I, I can look right. at my phone and go, hey, something's wrong. Um, right. And But this, you get none of that. You just stop yeah. receiving texts. Yeah, it's an interesting revelation for sure. Again, uh, it's over on the uh, Vice website uh, written by Joseph Cox. It's titled, A Hacker Got All My Texts for $16. Joe Kerrigan, thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Dave. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for CyberWire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. It's the pause that refreshes. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Tomorrow.